There are two parallel accounts to this which Matthew records, and we're going to read this one. And I've given you the references, Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4, so you can read those on your own and compare them. We're going to talk through them uh, as we work our way through this passage. So again, just read with me from verse 14 in Matthew's Gospel chapter 8. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. He took up our infirmities, and he carried our diseases. I'll leave you to read the parallel accounts in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. Jewish men did a particular thing every morning when they woke up. The very first thing that they did is they prayed. And they prayed this prayer. God, I thank you that I was not born a slave. God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile. And God, I thank you that I was not born a woman. That was their prayer. It gives you insight into the frame of reference that they lived. And slaves, Gentiles, and women all were viewed as living on a much lower plane than were Jewish men. Matthew records in chapter 8, as we have been studying, that Jesus performed two miracles. The first was that he had compassion on an outcast leper. And he healed a leper. In fact, he healed him with a touch, didn't he? Touched a leper. The next was that he healed the servant, or literally the slave, of a Roman Gentile centurion. He had compassion there. And now we're going to look at the account where he shows mercy and has compassion on a woman, most notably Peter's own mother-in-law. Now, Jesus' point in these healings, among other things, is that race, social status, or gender make absolutely no difference to him. None of these things, in and of themselves, are an advantage or a disadvantage as far as he was concerned. That the disadvantaged more often were the objects of his mercy and grace was due more often to their being humble and keenly aware of their need, and the advantaged more often failed to receive his grace due to their more often being proud and self-satisfied. All you have to do is read through the Gospels, and you see those people who are prideful, arrogant, they're in opposition to him, self-satisfied, trusting in their own human righteousness. They don't need him, so they don't get his compassion and grace. They quite frankly don't believe. But all those who come to him, intensely, keenly aware of their need, they are the objects of his mercy and his grace. Much like us. I was broken when I came to Jesus. I was desperate. I had nothing. And I came to him and I said, I give. I'm yours. I'm yours. I give. Whatever you want, I'm going to find out and then I'm going to do it. That's how I received the Lord. And it's been that way ever since. 
Most of us who've come to the Lord did not come conveniently and easily, all except my wife. <laughs> my wife just walked down an aisle at Melody Land years and years ago, and she was not a bad person. She wasn't like me. She wasn't a gross sinner. She didn't run around, do the, all this and stuff. And she just said, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> she walked down the aisle and received Jesus. Wow. I know very few people like that. <laughs> James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5 both tell us a very important truth. They tell us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see this played out in all these episodes throughout the Gospels. Those who are truly humble, they are the objects of God's grace and mercy. Those who are prideful and arrogant, he opposes them. He opposes them. It's important to remember those realities. Now in Mark's account of this event, of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, we learn, Mark reports that Jesus... Peter and his brother Andrew, and then the two brothers, James and John, they all go to Peter's house. They find Peter's mother, uh, mother-in-law, I should say, in bed with a fever, and they go and they tell Jesus about her, probably expecting that he would do something for her. Luke adds more information in his account. Luke tells us that her fever was high, and they asked Jesus to help her. Now, we're not told the cause of the fever, but malaria was common to this region as Capernaum, the city in which they were, is right on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and the River Jordan flows right there. The mouth of the River Jordan flows right into the Sea of Galilee, and there's a big marshy area which would be a breeding ground for mosquitoes. And so, in that sense, uh, malaria was not an uncommon uh, problem in this particular region where they lived. So you can, you can understand a high fever would be something that would typically be uh, uh, symptomatic of malaria. The Greek word for fever, by the way, that's used in the text is the same word, it's translated elsewhere, as fire. So the idea, I think, it may be that her she was burning with a severe fever. Luke, in fact, adds that she was suffering from a high fever. Now, these facts are important. The facts that her fever was high, that she was in bed, too sick to get up, suggests an extremely serious and probably life-threatening illness. Again, possibly malaria. When you read the text, you say, well, she was in bed with a headache. You think, what's the big deal? I get headaches all the time, right? They don't put me to bed. But with you, when you explore the text and the context, you, you, you come to a conclusion, hey, this is more than just a headache or fever. She is really probably deathly ill. And in that, in that, uh, in that area, the demands, demands of daily life were, were severe and demanding. And uh, those people didn't have the luxury like you and I do when I have a headache or I have a little fever, I'm going to go to bed. I tell my wife, honey, I'm not feeling good. She says, why don't you go to bed, sweetie? Man, you can hardly wait to get to bed, right? <laughs> We're just not feeling good. They didn't have that luxury in those days. Life was hard. Physical pain, discomfort, these were a regular part of these people's lives. 
And unless they were severe, the pain was severe, and the discomfort was severe, these pains and things did not normally interfere with a person's normal responsibility. They just carried on with life. They had to. Reminds me of mothers. I can never, ever once remember my mother being sick and taking time off. I can never remember that. She just worked and worked and worked and worked. And moms do that, don't they? They just have this ability. They have this commitment. Now look at verse 15 with me. When Jesus realizes that she has a high fever, she's really sick, what does he do? Does he say, take two aspirin and call me in the morning? What does he do? Yeah, he reaches out to her. He touches her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. The healing, I submit to you, was immediate. She didn't have to wait. Now, for a rabbi to touch a woman, because he touches her hand, for a rabbi to touch a woman who is not his wife is forbidden. But not only that, you have the added complication that she has a high fever. So for a rabbi to touch a woman who's not his wife and then who has a high fever, this would render him ceremonially unclean according to the Jewish law. But Jesus does both, doesn't he? He touches the woman who's not his wife and he touches a woman who has a fever. He's not only ministering to this woman in, 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 in granting her health, but he's demonstrating, more importantly, who he is. His authority. He is God in the flesh. And only God can do these things. She was so completely healed that she immediately got up and began to do what? She began to serve him. She began to wait on him and the disciples. It was customary, it was customary for a woman to serve food to guests in her home. So he makes her well, she gets up and she does the customary thing. She doesn't go shopping. She takes care of things at hand. And this was what she did. She took care of her guests and she uh, served her guests, most notably Jesus, certainly. Now the gospel writers, they give you a different perspective on all these different events. And, and some of the critics of the Bible, and more particularly the Gospels, they'll say, well, look, uh, Matthew doesn't say this. Luke says that. They're, they're, so they're, they're contradicting each other. No, they're not. They're complementing one another. It's much like you and I see an event. We both see the same event. Are we going to give the exact same report on that event? No, we're, we're going to describe it from our perspective, from what we think and our vantage point. So therein, we're still describing the same event. We're not contradicting each other, but our, our, our reports are going to be what? They're going to be complementary, so people are going to get a much fuller report. This is what the gospel writers do. Let me give you an illustration here. In Matthew, Matthew says that Jesus touched the woman's hand. Mark says he helped her to get up. Luke says he spoke to the fever and it left her. Could he have done all three of those things? Absolutely. And he did, according to the three gospel writers. Again, the accounts don't contradict. They don't conflict with each other. Rather, they complement each other. Now, Peter's mother-in-law, 
was healed to serve. Let me say that again. She was healed to serve. Say that with me. She was healed to serve. Very important. Very important. Jesus didn't just heal her so she'd just kind of merrily go on her way and do whatever she wanted. She had a role in life. She had a purpose in life that was ordained for her, and Jesus heals her so she might fulfill that role, and that role was to serve. Is there any connection between that and us? Have we been healed? What have we been healed of? Sin. We've been healed of sin. We've been saved from sin and death and hell. And we've been saved in order to just go our merry way? No, we're saved to serve. We're saved to serve. The Bible tells us that God has ordained things for us to do. He has before the foundation of the world, he knew us, and he already planned out things for us to do. He's already, he'd already gifted us. He has a way for us to go, and it remains for us to fulfill that way. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works that any man should boast. We can't credit it. It's a gift of God. And then he goes on later and he says, we are saved to do the good works that God has set forth before the foundation of the world. So we're, we're saved so that we might serve our God, serve Him and His kingdom and His purposes. Not to just kind of do our own thing and, uh, and putz around in this world without any real purpose. So she gets up and she serves them after a little while. No, immediately, immediately, in our response to his healing touch from us, do we do the same? Do we serve him immediately? Or do other things get in the way? Do we have an understanding? The Apostle Paul, again, in Romans chapter 12, he tells us, in response to what Jesus has done, he says, in view of his mercy, that our only reasonable response is to what? Offer our bodies, everything we are, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. Lord, here I am. I could never repay. When someone has done something for you that you desperately needed done in your life, they've exhibited grace to you. They're gracious to you. They've favored you. And, and you, you're, just, you're just so grateful do we say things like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I could never repay you. I'm forever in your debt. If there's anything I could ever do for you. Do we say stuff like that? The same thing is true. When you realize God's mercy to you, your only response is say, Father, whatever you need, I'll do it. I'm yours. When you realize what it means to be delivered from the power of sin and from its penalty, which is hell forever and ever and ever. You go, thank you, thank you. Our three baptism candidates today. 
They were willing to get up here publicly, be baptized in obedience to the Lord Jesus. Why? Because they realized something of the fact that they've been saved and they want to obey Jesus and give public testimony to their faith in him and express gratitude. Amen, church? Are you, tra- are you tracking with me okay? If, you don't, if you're a Christian, you're kind of wandering. You don't know where you fit. What's the old saying? Find a need and fill it. <laughs> Look around. Somebody needs to be greeted. Someone needs to be encouraged. Someone else needs a friend. Well, I don't have any friends. Go be a friend to somebody. Go be nice to somebody. I mean, there's so much opportunity in this world in which you can serve. You say, well, I'm not sure if that's the way God wants for me. Start. Get moving. And you'll realize what God has for you. Jesus gives us renewing grace. He gives us renewing grace for three reasons. One, he gives it to us to strengthen us so we might serve. But you don't realize that grace until you first take a step of faith to start to serve. And then you realize his grace. You realize his resources in your life. But if you're just sitting there waiting, twiddling your thumbs, tapping your toes, come on, God, come on, God, you're never going to realize His grace. His grace comes to bear the instant you take that step of faith to serve. You may not know what to do or how to do. Just start, and He'll do the rest. He gives us renewing grace not only to serve, but to persevere His grace enables us to persevere. There isn't a single one of us in this room who hadn't been a Christian any length of time, hasn't come to a place where you're just so frustrated you want to quit. It's hard. But you don't quit. Why don't you quit? Because His grace is active in your life so that you'll persevere. You come to that conclusion. He speaks into your heart and mind. I mean, I've experienced that. I weigh, I weigh all the stuff. I mean, I know tons of stuff. I know all the theology. But I, too, sometimes am tempted just to quit. And I have to think. No, I, I know that. 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 I know too much to quit. (laughs) That's not me. That's God's grace in me, enabling me to persevere. You can trust him. He's at work in your life. And he gives you you his renewing grace to enable you to overcome doubt. Oh, man, doubt. The devil, that's his greatest tool, doubt. And and if he can get you to start doubting and discourage you through doubt. But Jesus gives that grace that encourages us even in the midst of doubt. He carries us through. People say, I say, how are you? I'm hanging on. I'm just hanging on. That's their perspective. 
the Bible's perspective, no, 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 I tell them, you're not just hanging on, you're more than a conqueror. The Greek word is huper nikomen. You're a super Nike and not the shoe. That's why they named the Nike missiles after that, that Greek word. If you remember back when the Nike missiles were deployed. What did, what did Jesus tell the Apostle Paul? Remember when the Apostle Paul was, was struggling with this thorn in his flesh, this messenger of Satan that was given to him to keep him humble? When, and what did Paul say? God, three times, remove this from me. And what did God say? My grace is sufficient. You and I. We may not want this thing in our life. We may want to be free of it. We may want to be healed. We may want to be delivered from this, that, or the other. And we implore God. We implore God. And we continue to do so. And at some point, God says, my grace is sufficient. You're going to learn to live trusting in my grace. And then he goes on and says, for in your weakness, my strength is perfected. Wow. It's not my strength. It's his strength. It's perfected in our weakness. And so Paul goes on at the end of that chapter, and he says, when I am weak, I am strong. And he's strong in the strength of Jesus, who's active in his life. Somebody say, hallelujah. Amen. Well, shout. God is awesome. Working in our lives, changing us, strengthening us. Now, going back to our text, Mark and Luke and their accounts, record this interesting detail. And you could just easily pass right over it and miss it. But I think it's so significant, I want to address it. Mark and Luke, in their accounts, record that Jesus, quote-unquote, left the synagogue. He left the synagogue. Now, why might I think that's a significant statement? He left the synagogue. On what day would he attend the synagogue? The Sabbath. Oh, my goodness. What has he just done on the Sabbath? He healed a leper. He not only healed him, he touched a leper. He was in the synagogue. It's the Sabbath. Not only does that, he heals a centurion, a Gentile's slave on the Sabbath. And now it's still the Sabbath. He just left the synagogue. He's on his way, and he's going to do what? He's going to heal a woman. <laughs> Don't you love him? Is he not cool? In the next chapter, we're going to see where he's again in the synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand. Do you remember that account? And the guy wants his hand healed, and everybody, man, it's an electric moment. They're all watching him, and especially his enemies, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What's he going to do? And he says to him, stretch forth your hand. <laughs> and man, his withered hand was healed on the Sabbath. And immediately... The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, conspired with their enemies, the Sadducees, to figure out how they can kill him. 
I'd have loved walking with him with the knowledge I have now. <laughs> Just watching. Man. Now, all three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record that evening had come. Verse 16, evening had come. Now, why might that be a significant detail, do you think? When did the Sabbath end? In the evening. Now, when evening had come, what, did, what happened? What happened when evening came? What did the people do? They brought all their demon-possessed family members and friends, and they brought all the sick when the evening had come. You'd think at the end of the day, Jesus would say, we're shutting down shop, we're going to go home, it's been a long day. When evening had come. Because, because the, the religious leaders, many Jews were afraid to ask Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. And so when the Sabbath ended, man, they flocked to, to him. No, no, no compulsion. Not, they just brought all the needy people to him for him to heal them. All the demon-possessed and the sick. We're told that he drove out the spirits with a word. Yes, there are demons. If you don't believe me, there are demons. And people are demonized in varying degrees. I remember one time, and I've been part of a number of different events where we prayed with people, prayed over people to cast out demons. One particular time, uh, I walked past the prayer room, and that was when the prayer room was reconfigured in its original form. And there was a door, and with a window in the door, and I didn't realize anybody was in the prayer room, but there were some people in there praying with this lady. And uh, I had no idea what the... So I looked in the window, and I saw this little scene going on. I didn't know what was going on. So they're all praying. She looks up, just as I look in the window, she looks up and sees me. And she yells out loud. You can hear it through the door. I hate you! I thought, whoa, I better get in there. <laughs> She was truly demonized. And the vile things that came out of her mouth, disgusting, nothing, nothing held back. It was just absolutely vile. But we prayed and we prayed. We didn't cast that demon out with a word like Jesus did. It took us a while, but we saw her set free from the power of Satan himself. So he cast out, drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the, all the sick. I want you to notice, he makes a subtle distinction here. Cast all the spirits out and healed all the sick. I want to suggest to you that the distinction may in fact be that not all sickness has a demonic origin, but because of sin and a weakness of our flesh. But there are sicknesses that do have demonic origins. But he makes a differentiation here in the text. He was giving evidence of who he was. He's the Messiah. He's the king. 
He is God in the flesh. Now, as I suggested to you before, during Jesus' ministry in Palestine, he traveled the, the length and the breadth of Palestine, three years. He healed all their sicknesses, all their diseases, cast out all the demons. It's a preview of the coming fulfillment of the kingdom of God. There was not one sick person. There was not one demonized person. There was not one blind person. There was not one deaf person. There was not one crippled person. There was not one paralytic left by the time he got done ministering in Israel. Can you imagine? Everybody who came to him, except those few people in Nazareth who wouldn't be healed because they didn't believe. He healed everybody. Everybody. It's like you and I, if we could go to hospitals and we had this kind of power and this ability, we could empty hospitals. You just walk through the hallway, be healed, be healed, be healed. As you walk down the hall, each room, right? You don't have to go in the room. You just say, be healed in Jesus' name. He healed them all. Now notice verse 17. Verse 17, we read this. This was to fulfill. In other words, all that he was doing... All of the healings, everything he did, was done to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So here's a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. He took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. Now what does he mean by that? The point of this is that Jesus participated. Notice the words. He took up our infirmities. He carried our diseases. That's the NIV translation. Some of you have it worded a little bit differently, but the principle and the point and the meaning is still the same. He participated. In some way, he participated in human pain and sorrow. Now, I want to give you three ways that I think he participated in human pain and sorrow to fulfill that verse, that prophecy. First, by sympathizing with our pain and our sickness. Do you think that Jesus knows our conditions? Does he know our heart? Yeah, the Bible tells us only he knows our heart. We don't even know our own hearts. Does he know our feelings, our deep inner feelings? Stuff that we don't even realize and we can't touch? Our diseases? Does he know and understand our agonies, our confusions, our despair, and the frustration that disease and sickness bring in addition to the physical pain and discomfort? Does he know all that stuff, do you think? Yes. He sympathizes with us. Much like you and I would sympathize with a family member or a friend or a brother and sister in Christ, we would sympathize. They're struggling. They're in pain. They're experiencing loss. And we go, I understand. I understand. You may or may not have been through that, but you, you, you can sense the pain. You can sense the loss. You can sense the grief and the sorrow. You say you sympathize. The Bible tells us simply to mourn with those who mourn. Doesn't tell us to preach at them. 
just to mourn with them, sympathize with them. And further on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 9, verse 36, Matthew records that Jesus looked upon the crowds. And when he looked on the crowds, he had compassion for them because he saw them as being harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. You and I look on people's lives and they're, they're just... They're just harassed, miserable lives, and you can't help it. Your heart breaks for them. You have compassion for them. But the question is, does that compassion move you to help them? Or you just stop right there? In the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The role of the high priest in Israel was to, on, the, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the one holy day in all of Israel, that one day the high priest was to sympathize with the people and sympathize with their weaknesses and sympathize with the challenges of their life. And he was to go into the Holy of Holies. He's the only person that could go into the very presence of God in the, in the, in the tent of meeting or in the temple into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat and make intercession for the people. But of course, it was the, role, the high priest's role to sympathize with the people. To be such of heart and mind that his, his intercessions would be effective as he sprinkled that blood of the sacrificed animal. But, as most humans are, and as most officials... It was hard for the high priest to actually be sympathetic. It became a religious ritual. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable or unwilling to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows. He feels it. He sympathizes with us and for us. When the, when the, the, the passage says, he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases... Jesus didn't carry our diseases by contracting them, but by experiencing vicariously the pain that they bring. Secondly, I think, he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases in the sense that he saw and he felt the destructive power of their root cause. What would be the root cause of our Diseases and sicknesses. What's the root cause? Sin. It's sin. It's this disease that permeates and controls every cell of our existence, personally, physically, and spiritually. It's infected the whole creation. We commit sins because we are sinful to begin with. And I believe that he not only saw this, but he felt the destructive power. Example, his good friend Lazarus. Do you recall that? John chapter 11, the account of Lazarus. Lazarus' good friend is very, very sick. So word is sent to Jesus. Please come. Lazarus is sick. Jesus delays a couple of days, purposefully. And then he shows up. Lazarus has died in the meantime, as Jesus has delayed. 
Mary and Martha come and say, if you would only, where were you? If you'd only been here on time, you would have saved him. He wouldn't have died. And then Jesus goes to talk to him about the resurrection, all that sort of stuff. So Jesus says to Mary and Martha, he says, where have you laid him? Where's the tomb? They said, it's over here. So they took him to the tomb. He's standing at the tomb. The shortest verse in the Bible says he did what? He wept. He wept. Now the question is, why did he weep? What was he crying for? Was he crying because experiencing grief over Lazarus' death? I don't think so, because in about 20 seconds, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, isn't he? I love, that. I love that picture. He says to them, roll back the stone. Lord, he's been in there four days. He stinketh. Don't <laughs> you love that? Roll back the stone. Okay. This had to be, because there's a crowd of people around there, this had to be one of the most electric moments. He goes, they roll back the stone, everybody's going, what's going to happen? He says, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> Lazarus shuffles forth. Why? Because he was all bound up with bandages. Would you have loved to have been there? Go, Yay, Jesus. No, I believe Jesus wept because of the evil, sinful power that brought sickness and suffering and death to his creation. It says he stood there and he surveyed the crowd. John writes... In verse 33 of that chapter, he was greatly agitated. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why, why should he be greatly agitated? Because he saw what sin had done, how it had corrupted his creation, how it brought death and suffering. And the second time in verse 38, that, that same phrase is repeated. He was greatly agitated. You see, sickness and suffering and death were all inextricably linked to one cause, that's sin, and only the power of God can deal with it. He identified, he sympathized, and he felt what sin had done. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, Jesus took up our infirmities and carried our diseases in that his vicarious redeeming work on that cross dealt with sin. He dealt with it. And he dealt with it in such a powerful way that ultimately all sickness, ultimately all disease and death will be no more. Here's Jesus, the King, the Messiah. He's offering his kingdom and he's previewing its marvelous and glorious aspects one of the most wonderful of which will be once and for all, final removal of all illness, all disease, forever. He's saying, come and get it. He healed. 
because of his divine and loving compassion for those who were suffering. He healed because he hated sickness and disease, which were never really a part of God's plan for man in the beginning. But he also healed in order to give a preview of his coming kingdom in which there would be no more sin, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. That's the hope of glory that you and I possess as Christians. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something imaginary. It's a living hope that we have, that we hold on to, that one day Jesus comes back, his kingdom will be consummated in every respect, and all the things that threaten us will be no more. Let me read to you from Revelation. Yes, amen. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 21. John writes, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And who might that be? That's the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. My, this is what's waiting for us. This is what's waiting for us. God, God is so good. He's so good. But before his kingdom could come in all of its fullness, and before we can be free of suffering and death, one thing still yet has to happen. What's the one thing that still yet has to happen? Jesus, the King, the Messiah himself, will have to what? He's going to have to suffer and die to redeem us from sin. Now, Matthew is quoted from Isaiah. He quoted Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. The verse right after that, verse 5, says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's what God said was going to happen. Jesus is going to die. He's going to die in our place. Die for us that we might have life and have peace. And before he suffered and died... He would give evidence of his divine power by taking up our infirmities and carrying our sorrows, verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 53. All this he was acquainted with. Isaiah says in another place, he was a man who was acquainted with grief. He took up our sorrows and carried our diseases. He identified in a powerful way and in so doing, he would die to set us free from these things. Is he a great God? Absolutely. Disease and death cannot be permanently removed without sin being permanently removed. 
Unless sin is finally dealt with, everything else is a Band-Aid. Everything else is a Band-Aid. Sin has to be dealt with, and we have to come to him so that that dealing with sin is effective in our life. This is why it's so imperative to be a Christian, to be born again. Jesus' supreme work was to conquer sin. That's the root cause of all of our problems, sin itself. That's his supreme work. And in the atonement, he does deal with sin. He deals with death. He deals with sickness. And yet all three of these things are still with us. When he died on the cross, the Bible says that he bruised the head of Satan. He hasn't yet finally dealt with him. He bruised his head. It was a picture of what was going to happen. He broke the power of sin when he died on the cross. And the Bible says that whoever believes in him and believes in his atoning work on that cross, we all have to admit we're sinners. We all have to admit we're guilty before a holy God. There's no debate about that. You can't say, yeah, but I'm a good person. I'm a good person. No, no, no. You're a sinner just like all of us. You need redeeming just like all of us. No one skates. You can't just be religious. You must be born again. You must believe in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on that cross. And when you do, you are immediately delivered, immediately delivered from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin, but you're not yet immediately delivered from the presence of it. The Apostle Paul, in writing about this in Romans chapter 6, says, Sin shall not be your master. It was my master. But when I put my faith in Jesus, he set me free from the power of sin. Sin no longer rules my life. He says to me now, therefore, do not let sin reign any longer in your mortal body that you should obey its evil desires. Don't let it reign. It wants to reign. Sin wants to reign. Sin says, Let's stay in bed this morning. Stay in bed this morning. Don't get up. Don't get up. Oh, you feel so good. This pillow and this blankets. Oh, this nice mattress. Oh, it feels so good. Stay in bed. It's the sin says to my flesh. But I'm not going to let sin reign any longer in this mortal body. I'm getting up. I'm getting up because i got to be here. <laughs> I want to sleep in just like you. Oh, I'm delivered from the power of sin. If you're, if you're a Christian, a true Christian, you say, well, I, I just can't help myself. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Don't let sin reign any longer. Say no to it. No. No. Amen? Amen. And I've been set free from its penalty. What's sin's penalty? Hell. Eternal death. Forever and ever and ever. Well, I don't believe in hell. <laughs> Just because you don't believe in it doesn't make it any less true. It's hell. I've been set free from its penalty. I've been set free from its power. But I've not been yet set free from its presence because its presence still permeates this body. That's why Paul tells me, don't let it reign any longer in your mortal body. You can rise above it. 
Don't use excuses. Don't say, wah, wah. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Don't be whining and crying around me. One day, one day, we will be fully and totally delivered from every last speck and remnant of sin in these bodies. In fact, these bodies are going to go down in the grave and we're going to get brand new bodies. Wow. Awesome. Isn't that exciting? We live in what's been described as the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet here fully. We wait for its fulfillment wherein all that we hope for and all the Bible talks about and all that God has promises us is going to happen for us. The central message of the gospel, this is important, the central message of God's good news is deliverance from sin. Don't let anybody psychobabble you. It's deliverance from sin. We need to be delivered from sin. All of our problems, all of our issues stem from that. You need to go to Jesus and humble yourself under his mighty hand that his grace may lift you up. It's the good news about forgiveness. It's not the good news about health. It's the good news about forgiveness. That's what we need. Christ was made sin, the Bible says. He was made sin, not disease. He died on the cross for our sin, not our sickness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says this. He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on that tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. God says in another place, because I'm holy, you should be holy. What's the goal of our life? Aspire to holiness. Aspire to holiness. God, I want to live a holy life. I want to live a holy life. I want to honor you in every respect. Because of what you've done for me, I want to live a holy life. I'm done with childish things. I'm done with the foolishness of this life. The puny things that, that don't really make any difference. The petty Things in relationships that I make a big deal over. No more. I'm going to live a holy life. Church, I charge you. I inspire you. I encourage you. Aspire to holiness. To excellence. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. That we live for righteousness. That we live for holiness. You know, in some ways, it's really hard to, to understand how some people who just after hearing, after hearing Jesus speak and, and after witnessing just one miracle, it's hard to understand how they would reject him. But you take that a step further, it's still harder to understand why people would continue to reject him after continuing to hear him speak and see him heal crowds of people. You would think, what is the matter with you? And it is unbelievable that God's own chosen people who were given the, His covenant, they were given His law, they were given His prophets, His many special blessings, that they would reject the Son of their own God, the Messiah. The Messiah that their own scriptures prophesied. 
the deliverer, the very deliverer whom they claimed to look for and long for. And when Jesus came, there was a great messianic expectation in Israel at that time. They knew all the prophecies. They knew the Messiah was going to show up at any moment. In fact, Nicodemus goes to him and recorded in John's Gospel in chapter 3, and he says, are you the one we're waiting for? Because one of the titles of the Messiah was the Awaited One. It's unbelievable how people can see and experience what they saw and what they heard and what they experienced, and they still reject him. And the unbelief and the rejection of God's people flew in the face of everything that Jesus said and did in their very midst. How can you and I, as we read these accounts, and we have the Holy Spirit living into us, uh, witnessing to us, saying, yes, 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 how can we live lives as practical unbelievers? You know what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like it doesn't make any difference. This is not an exercise of futility. We gather here because we need to hear these things. We need to be reminded. We need to encourage one another. We need to express our gratitude to him. The proofs of his divinity, the proofs of his power, his goodness were obvious. They were beyond contradiction. And yet, as the evidence increased, so did resistance and rejection. And those who rejected him, even after witnessing his miracles, were like a judge or a jury who, after hearing an open and shut case, knew what the details were. Even after that, they make a decision that is in the exact opposite of what the evidence would call for. Unbelievable. He taught with authority. No one else said the things he said. No one else said them the way he said them. He did things that nobody else ever did. Miracles. Everything about Jesus was astounding, marvelous, and humanly unexplainable. You could not explain him humanly. He was other than human. He was human, but he was also God. It's no wonder then when the people who marveled at him would not accept him. It's no wonder that Jesus marveled at them, Mark says, because of their unbelief. He met Jesus just shaking his head. How can people witness God's power over and over again, admit that it is marvelous, even divine, and yet refuse to accept and refuse to follow the one who says and does such amazing things? There are people today who call themselves Christians. They deny the miraculous. They deny that Jesus did these things. They deny that he was born of a virgin. They deny the resurrection. And yet for them, Jesus was a good man. He's the Messiah. But they gutted him of all of his power. They gutted him of the miraculous. And they teach people that stuff. Aren't you glad you're here? <laughs> Jesus himself explains. He explains why some people run from the truth in John's Gospel, chapter 3. Let me read this to you. This is very instructive. Why some people run from the truth. He said, this is the verdict. 
Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. Truth be known, we don't want to come out in the open. We don't want to come out in the open. This is what makes those baptisms this morning so powerful. Here's three people who come out in the open. Testify. But men love the darkness because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Do our deeds need to be exposed? Do we need to be accountable? Yeah. This is why, this is why community is so important. This is why it's vital that, that we get to know and get to be known. That we confess our sins to one another. Some people run from the truth because, quite frankly, it exposes their sin and they do not want to give that sin up. Others are attracted to Jesus' charisma. They're attracted to his power. Oh, wow, wow, wow. They marvel at the wonderful things he says and does, but they don't take it to heart. People will come up to me, somebody will come up to me after a service, and they'll say, you'll say, Pastor, that was a Wow, that was a great sermon, great message. I say, it's only great if you do something with it, if you take it to heart. Otherwise, it's nothing. It makes no difference. It goes in in one ear, out the other. By Tuesday, if I called you and said, what did I teach on the weekend? You go, uh, let's see. I know it was good, but um. <laughs> you got to take it to heart. You got to leave here today. Start taking it to heart. People follow Jesus from a distance. They want to be thrilled, but they don't want to be changed. They want to even maybe be entertained, but not saved. Paul writes to Timothy, that young pastor, he says the time coming when people are only going to want to be entertained, they're going to want their ears tickled. They're not going to stand sound doctrine. People often want to be identified as a follower of Jesus. I are a follower of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But the tragedy is, far too often, their commitment is superficial and their staying power is nil. They have no staying power. They're in and out. They're wobbly. Superficial commitment. No staying power. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. It's not just you say, I believe in Jesus. You give, your life gives evidence of it. Why is it that some people, many people in fact, who profess to be Christians, why is it that their commitment is so superficial? Why is it that they have no staying power? I'll tell you next week. <laughs> Amen? Amen.